Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure that they're in right relationship with the Lord. Scripture teaches that when we sin, we're, our fellowship, our rapport with God is broken, but when we, we confess sin, we're cleansed and forgiven, and that fellowship is restored so we can resume our walk by the Spirit. So let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're grateful that we have you to come to, that as we look out on the uh, details of life today and we see where our culture is headed, we see where our government's been headed, we see so many uh, issues related to our state, our nation, and international affairs, and things just don't look good. And it's easy for people to get their eyes off of you and onto politics and onto economics and onto the stock market and all these various uh, circumstances, and for, and we forget that you are the God who is in control, that nothing that is happening is a surprise to you, nothing that is taking place has not been provided for, that you are the God who sustains us and strengthens us, and it's our responsibility to live each day as unto you, to focus upon you each day, uh, not to be... Uh, consumed with worry and anxiety over what may come, but to live each day uh, as unto itself and to focus upon the things that we can deal with just today and not worry about what will come to trust in you. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to guide and direct us, to strengthen our thinking, to give us a framework for understanding the truth and to be able to properly interact with what goes on around us and can keep our mental attitude focused based on faith in you and in your word. And, Father, we pray that we might not flag in terms of our day-to-day consistency in focusing on you and your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're studying in 1 Samuel. We're in 1 Samuel chapter chapter 3. Uh, we're making remarkable progress. Uh, we live in a world today where... Uh, People, people. The the trends in churches are uh, that nobody should ever preach a series that's more than five or six lessons, and they don't do expositional preaching anymore. It's not popular. Uh, that's rejected. In fact, I've heard a lot of pastors say it's hard to find young men who want to learn how to really truly exegete the word and to teach verse by verse because it's just not popular. It's not popular for a number of reasons, but mostly it's because people just don't want to know the word. A lot of Christians don't want to know the word. And 
As a result of that, we enter into phases of spiritual darkness in any culture. And that's exactly the kind of circumstance that was going on in Israel at this time. They are in a time of tremendous spiritual darkness and rejection of the truth and ignorance of the truth. And it was much worse than the kind of situation we have today. We covered this a little bit when we first started in 1 Samuel, but Samuel takes place, these first seven chapters take place during the time that's called the period of the Judges. And one verse is repeated twice in the book of Judges, and it's the verse that says that there was no king in Israel in those days, which is kind of a double entendre indicating that, number one, there's no literal king like Saul or David, but also that they've rejected God as their king, and Israel was set up at this time under a theocracy. So they've rejected God as the ultimate authority for life, and in God's place they substituted their own vacillating values. And it's the next line says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and that's what the book of Judges is about. You have a section that deals with the leadership from Othniel to Samson, talking about how the leaders did what was right in their own eyes, and you see this steady deterioration and decline and degeneracy among the leaders. Othniel, about whom nothing negative is said, all the way to Samson, about whom nothing positive is said. And then there's a couple of different situations that occur at the end of the book of Judges, but one of them focuses on the degeneracy of the priesthood, which is really good background for what we learn here in First Samuel, in the first three chapters of Samuel, in relation to Eli the high priest and his two sons Hophni and Phineas. If you don't remember the episodes in First Samuel seven, I mean in Judges seventeen, I'll just briefly review it. You had this character named Micah, who's living in the hill country, and he has sort of an itinerant Levite that's unnamed. You have to wait to the end of the story in chapter 18 before you get the punchline, which identifies who uh, who this guy is. And this Levite comes, and he hires the Levite to set up his own little shrine and his own little temple, uh, and, and basically it's a secondary uh, worship site uh, uh, away from the tabernacle. He's going to invent his own little religious system right there at his house, and people can come by, and he's going to support the... Uh, support this Levite. And then what happens is the tribe of Dan, which is so compromised in terms of their spirituality and their obedience to God in terms of conquering the land that God gave them, which was supposed to be down along the coast, that they haven't conquered the Canaanites, and they're, they're homeless drifters, as it were. And as they start looking for a better place to have as their home, they send out a scout team that comes by Micah's house, gets acquainted with this Levite, uh, Levitical priest that's there, and then they headed north to the area uh, of Laish, which is in the far northern part uh, of Israel. Now it's it was later known as as Dan because the tribe of Dan migrated there, and it's up about thirty miles or so north of the Sea of Galilee, one of the farthest. Uh, areas and so they went up there, spied out this area, and said, "Well, the, the Canaanites that live there are weak, and we can we can kill them all and just steal their land, take their land from them." And so when they did that, they also decided to bribe this Levite uh, to leave Micah and to bring his idol with him and to set up this alternate worship site up in up in Laish. 
And so they convince him to do that, and he abandons Micah and goes with the, the tribe of Dan and goes up there and basically sets up this alternate uh, religion, uh, this idolatrous religion up, up, in, uh, up in the area of Dan. And when you get to the punchline, at the very end, it gives us, it identifies this priest and says his name is Gershon, the son. And if you look in your English Bible, this is in chapter 18, you look in your English Bible, it says he's Gershon, the son of Manasseh. But that's that's not a correct uh, uh, understanding of that. You go back into the text, textual history of that, it's probably not Manasseh because they inserted the, the letter N into the name because the rabbis back in the early part of, uh, uh, of the church age didn't like the name that was there because they thought that this would cast aspersions upon this well-respected leader. And if you, if in Hebrew, you have, uh, you only have a one letter difference between the name Moshe and the name Menashe. And Menashe is anglicized to Manasseh and Moshe is anglicized to Moses. And in the Hebrew, there weren't any vowels, so Moshe is just M and SH. And in ancient manuscripts, they put a little N. You can find, there are a few ancient manuscripts that have been discovered where they put an N in there, kind of a superscript between the M and the SH to indicate that this should be Menashe and not Moshe. And so just that one letter difference, because at that time you didn't have any vowels in the, um, in the English text. So the point is that this apostate Levitical priest that is leading the northern kingdom into idolatry is no one less than the son or grandson of Moses himself. And the whole point of that episode is to show how degenerate Israel has become at this time, that they've apostatized, they're in idolatry, they're not living any differently from the Canaanites, and they are just an absolute total mess. And that's roughly the same time frame as we have here with with the um, uh, the the clan of Levi, Levi is the high priest, and his two sons, uh, Hophni and Pinchas. So that's where we are, and God is getting ready to change things up. And that's the message of hope that's in Samuel, is that God is going to change things, and he is on the way uh, in the process of doing that. So what we see in this section is there's going to be a shift from darkness to light, and there are a lot of interesting uh, word plays in this section, which we find, uh, which I pointed out when we studied Judges years ago. A lot of interesting puns and paranomasias in the Hebrew, and the same thing is true in uh, in in First uh, Samuel. There's a lot of things that that the writers use to sort of get our attention and make make the point. And sometimes when we just blow our way through this reading in a hurry, we we miss these little uh, nuances that are there to get our attention because they reinforce. Uh, the point. So I want to go back and just review for us a little bit sort of an outline so we don't lose the forest for the trees and we understand what's happening here. The first major division in Samuel is in chapters 1 through 7 where we see Yahweh preparing to deliver Israel by a great change. And this doesn't take place overnight. It took somewhere between uh, 30 to 50 years for this transition to take place, and it wasn't simple. The Israelites ended up having 
having their, their, their tail end kicked by the Philistines in a battle that we'll study when we get into chapter 4 called the Battle of Aphek when some 30,000, over 30,000 Israelites were slaughtered by the Philistines. The Ark of the Covenant's captured, the temple or the tabernacle is burned to the ground, and it just looks like everything is lost. So when you look out at a collapsing stock market that's only dropped about a 1,000 points, even though that's the greatest uh, number of points it's dropped in a single day. Percentage-wise, it doesn't even come close to what happened in 1987. In 87, it dropped the what would be the equivalent of 4,000 points. So uh, yesterday wasn't, uh, uh, wasn't as bad as some people might think. But those kind of things, things happen. Getting involved in wars and famines and droughts and all of these other things, God is still in control. And he has a plan that's going to be worked out. So he, he prepares Israel for a change. And the beginning of that is the birth of Samuel. He's going to provide a new prophet and new priest and new judge. Remember, Eli's the priest and a judge. They haven't had a prophet. The last time anyone is mentioned as a prophet is the prophetess Deborah back in Judges chapter 5 and 6. So there hasn't been a prophet really since Moses. So Samuel is going to be born. He's going to replace Eli as judge and priest, and he will add to that that he will be a prophet of God, which is what chapter 3 is all about. Yahweh then orchestrates the collapse of the old order in 1 Samuel 2, 11 to 4.22. We're in the middle of that section right now. We've seen this beginning of the uh, the collapse where we see the uh, understanding of how wicked and how pagan and how uh, degenerate the sons of Eli are, even to the point of pressuring the women who are serving at the temple to function as temple prostitutes. So he's, they, they've perverted the whole worship of God and desecrated the service at the, uh, at the, at the tabernacle. And God has already sent an unnamed prophet, a man of God that's identified or that's mentioned at, from chapter, um, two, verse 22 down to 31, who announces judgment on the house, house of Eli. We're going to see a second confirmation of that with the uh, call of Samuel in chapter three. And then this comes to pass in chapter four. So there's a first announcement in 2 Samuel 2, 11 to 36, which we've studied. And then as we go forward, we see that um, he's going to, God is going to call out the first prophet of this new order, new arrangement that he's going to bring into existence because two things have to happen. God has to be true to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that it's going to be through their descendants that he is going to uh, bless the whole world, and so he's he to be true to his word. He has to bring about a change, but also because I think that there were a number of believers, a remnant in Israel at that time, uh, exemplified by Hannah and Elkanah, that were trusting the Lord, following the Lord. They were a small remnant, and God is now coming to answer their prayers. And so, in this chapter, we basically see three sections. The verses 1 through 10 where Yahweh is training Samuel through Eli. Interesting point. God is using the pagan degenerate Eli 
to train Samuel. Another point, Samuel is submissive. He's obedient to a pagan degenerate priesthood as he's being trained by the Lord to serve in that capacity. He's waiting on the Lord, and so in the meantime, he is going to be obedient and submit to their authority. Second section, Yahweh calls Samuel to begin his prophetic ministry. This is covered in verses 11 to 18, where we have the prophecy given to Samuel. And then third, uh, Yahweh is going to validate Samuel's prophetic ministry. Now, that's a really important point, because a lot of times we hear people get the idea that in the Old Testament period, God just spoke willy-nilly to people. And that's farther, the, the farthest thing from the truth. God did speak, but he spoke at limited times to limited people. And whenever God spoke in private to anyone, he always confirmed it objectively. So there was no point in the Old Testament when God could just come and, or a person could just come and say, well, God told me to do this. In fact, the few examples that we have of something like this were were wrong. This was where somebody was being deceptive or somebody was just using God to further their own agenda. Uh, but in Samuel, what we see is when God does something in private, he always confirms it with a second witness in public with that, uh, with some sort of confirmatory objective evidence. Now, just to see how things move through the first 12 chapters of Genesis, we'll look at the key people. In uh, chapter 1, 1, first chapter was about Hannah coming to the temple, making a vow to God that if God would give her a son, then God would give her a son despite the fact that she's been barren, that she would give that son back to the service of the Lord. Uh, 2, 1 through 11, or 1 through 10, actually, uh, she is praising God for how he has given Samuel, and she sees how Samuel somehow is connected to the fulfillment of God's promise of a future future Messiah. And 2, 2.11 just talks about how, it, how, how uh, Samuel is ministering, serving the Lord. And this is highlighted several times from 2.11 down through the end of chapter 3, and, and four times it's mentioned that Samuel is serving the Lord, and that's in contrast to the fact that Elkanah isn't, I mean, excuse me, that Eli isn't, and that his sons aren't. So God is making a specific point saying, see, Samuel is doing what he's supposed to do. He's serving the Lord, but these guys are abusing uh, the people. They're abusing their position. They're abusing the privileges I've given them, and they are leading the people into further further degeneracy. So there's a contrast with Eli's sons in 2.12 to 2.17, then we shift back to Samuel in 2.18 to 2.21, and then there's a shift to a focus on Eli and his sons and the prophecy of God's judgment, harsh judgment, on Eli and his sons and the fact that, that the priesthood is going to be taken away from them and no one in their line is even going to live to old age and those that do serve in the temple aren't even going to be able to support themselves or are going to have to beg for bread. Uh, and so this harsh judgment is going to come upon Eli and his line because of their disobedience. And then in chapter 3, from verse 1 down to the first part of chapter 4, verse 1, the focus is on Samuel, and then it's going to focus, is going to shift back to Eli and his sons and the judgment that God brings on them uh, and the consequences of that judgment from 4.1 to 7.2, and then the focus goes back to Samuel and then to Saul in uh, 7.3 to 12.25. 
25. So that's just, just gives you a, a review of how this, uh, how the movements take place in this particular, this particular section. We looked at this in chapter, uh, two, that there are six basic things that happen. Uh, Yahweh is served by Samuel in 2.11. Then, uh, Yahweh is treated contemptuously by the sons of Eli in 2.12 to 17. Then it goes back to Hannah and God, how Yahweh is blessing the family of Hannah and blessing Samuel in 2.18 to 21. And then uh, the fourth point is that Yahweh determines to judge the house of Israel in 1 Samuel 2.25 to 25. That's announced. Then there's a one-verse statement of how Yahweh is blessing Samuel again. He's continuing to grow. In verse 26, the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and man, a verse that is almost restated in application to the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 2, 2, uh, 52. And then six, the last thing that happens is that Yahweh sends a prophet to announce a judgment on the house of Eli in 1 Samuel 2, 27-36. Now something interesting happened this afternoon as I was putting my my notes together, and after I restudied the passage and worked my way through it, and that is that that I discovered, or I have a large, thick file of my notes when I taught this series on First Samuel back in 1988, and I don't have all the notes. I didn't apparently keep everything, but I did have the notes for, for this particular section, and I was reading what I said in my introduction, and I thought, this is almost prescient. Uh, compared to, you know, when we look at where we are today. And I just thought I'd put this up on the screen. I said at that time that recent studies have shown an increasing trend. Among, this is 88, remember. There's an increasing trend among evangelicals that they're moving back to mainline denominations. By 1988, you could hear the death knell of the Bible church movement. There was a shift was already taking place. And I, I said, this shows how deep the apostasy is penetrating our supposed Bible teaching churches. Why is this happening? It's simple. After 50 years of Bible churches, they're in decline. Expository preaching is beginning to be less popular, and people prefer something other than Bible teaching. They want entertainment. They want to be stimulated and have their emotions stimulated. They want to be motivated. They want to hear a positive message. They just don't want to hear the Word of God. And I said the recent emphasis on application, apart from an in-depth exposition, has left people without the ability to think critically, so they are opting for a new social Christianity. I could have said that today. It's amazing how things have deteriorated in the last 30 years. All right, so we're looking at 1 Samuel 3. This is a great chapter. It's a great chapter because... God is moving to change things, and he changes things through his word. And it's important because there's some good background here in terms of of understanding God's revelation and the importance of his word. So what we see is three basic divisions, that Yahweh is training Samuel through Eli in the first ten verses, and then in verses 1 through 18, Samuel is going to be called to begin his prophetic ministry. Now, there's some significant things to say about uh, 
the role of the prophet, I don't think we'll get there tonight, but it's important. And then third, that Yahweh validates Samuel's prophetic uh, ministry. Now, one of the things that, the second thing we ought to see is after we talk about the basic structure here, is to note that the chapter is tied, this chapter is connected back to the previous chapter through a number of common words and phrases. And the reason that's important is because you always have liberals come along and they want to kind of dice up the scripture and say that this was all cobbled together sometime after the Babylonian captivity. And you had these editors that came in who just borrowed from here or there. But what we see is an integrated text where the, where it shows a, a common and continuous style and vocabulary that shows a unity to the text that, that this is what, what's revealed. Now that's important in Samuel because Samuel is, is probably the, often stated to be the, the least, the, the, the manuscript, the ancient manuscript with the least integrity. And what that means is that there's been there, there's more textual problems in Samuel than any other Old Testament book. So there's places when you're not we're not just real clear on what the original text said. In fact, in the Hebrew text, when it says that Saul reigned, when the English Bible says Saul reigned forty years, the Hebrew Bible has a blank there. It got lost. Now the the Septuagint says 40 years, and that's where we get 40 years, and that's, and that's probably correct. But we, it, it affirms our faith and trust in Scripture when we see these things that indicate this, that this isn't something somebody cobbled together later on, but that there is a continuous flow of thought and continuous vocabulary. Now, a third thing we ought to note is that the opening themes, and this is really fascinating, uh, when we read through the text, and sometimes uh, it's important to read through various passages over and over again, and all of a sudden it, it's like sitting out in a deer blind about 5.30 in the morning. And as, uh, as light gradually begins to uh, dissipate the darkness, you're sitting there and you're looking at a clump of trees and then you, you, you move your eye somewhere else and all of a sudden you move back and, and a deer's there. And that deer's been there the whole time you were sitting there, but it was so camouflaged by, by the natural coloring of the hide that you just didn't see it. And now there's enough light to where you see it. And a lot of times in Bible studies like that and we just miss some of the things that are there because we're not taking time to, to, to really look. And I want you to, I thought I had a slide here, I do, but I want to pull it, get the right order here. I want you to look at these initial verses. Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. And it came to pass at that time when Eli was lying down in his place and when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of the God was and while Samuel, Samuel was lying down. What the writer is doing is he's bringing several things to our attention here that have to do with darkness and light and with illumination and the lack of illumination. Revelation is illumination. It is God speaking truth to 
his people that illuminates their minds to the truth. And throughout Scripture, we do have these themes of this contrast between light and darkness, but the writer is using uh, his style, his, his, his wording, and the way he's describing the scene to bring to our attention the theme that's going on here is that there's going to be new revelation and illumination, and that what we see with Eli is that his, the dimness of his eyes, it reminds us of the dimness of the eyes spiritually of the people. They're in spiritual darkness, and there's no light because they've been in negative volition. God has not been uh, been revealing um, himself to them. Now, there is a, a style that is called chiaroscuro. You may not have heard that word before. It spells C-H-I-A-R-O, C-H-I-A-R-O-S-C-U-R-O. And if you've got a background in art, you've heard this. It describes the use of shadow and light and darkness in order to bring out or emphasize certain things within the painting that the artist wants you to, wants the observer to pay attention to and to look at. And I've got a couple of examples here. This is a, a painting by Peter Paul Rubens called The Elevation of the Cross. And you see his uh, tremendous use of light and sh- darkness and shadow in order to uh, bring our attention and our focus upon uh, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ as he's on the cross and being uh, and the cross is being elevated. And I think it's interesting that the lightest part of that whole uh, painting is his side, which is the side that's going to receive the spear at the end of the crucifixion. But he's using light to draw our attention to what he wants us to focus on. And you'll see that in a lot of artwork. Another example is Rembrandt's The Nativity, and we see that the lightest part of the screen is uh, of the painting is the infant Jesus. That's what he's drawing our attention to. And this this same kind of of idea of using but using words rather than uh, using uh, paint is used in in literature to draw our attention to certain things. So that's what uh, is going on here. And the writer is actually using words that are related to light and darkness and illumination, vision, terminology like that to bring our attention to what he is emphasizing within this chapter. And that's what's important when we study the Bible is to try to understand what the writer is focusing our attention on. And even though there may may be a number of secondary and tertiary ideas within the passage, the writer, being an excellent writer because he's inspired by God the Holy Spirit, is drawing our attention to certain things through these different uh, literary devices. And as I said, this is something that is uh, a theme throughout Scripture, that God does not leave his people in darkness. And even though they have been in darkness because of their own negative volition, there are those who are of the remnant that need light and because of God's character backing his promises to make a great nation out of Israel and to bless other nations uh, through Israel, God is going to change things. And what we see here is that in this episode that Samuel, 
because Samuel is going to be the vehicle for this new light, this new revelation, this new illumination of God's purpose and his plan for Israel, that, that God is uh, using him as a type or as an example or pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. That ultimately when we think of light and darkness in, in, in the Scripture, we ought to be thinking about certain key passages in the New Testament. If I were to ask you what is one of the most significant books in the New Testament to talk about light and darkness, what would you say? Hmm? John. Excellent, John. That's right. The Gospel of John. John begins in John 1, 4, saying, In him was life, and his life was the light of men. Now, I've often said Samuel ought to be called the Gospel according to Samuel because Samuel uses all these themes. He starts off with Israel in slavery under the dominion of the Philistines, just like we're born in slavery to sin. And he end, they end in, in victory and prosperity with the messianic king on the throne. And it's, it's David who is the foreshadow, the, the type uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that they make this transition from darkness and depravity and death to life and light because of the grace of God and by, by trusting in God. But it doesn't happen easily or simply, and God just doesn't snap his fingers and it doesn't just change. So there's there's a lot in the books of Samuel that focus us towards the Gospel of John. In John 1, nine, we read that he was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now, that's an extremely significant verse because it, it, it reflects a verse in the Psalms that says that we it's in God's light that we see light. In other words, without the illumination of God's Word, we can't understand the details of creation. We're left to just guess as to what everything is all about. John 3.19 and 20, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light. What a condemnation of the human race. We have the second person of the Trinity who's incarnate living amongst us, and we'd rather live in darkness and depravity and degeneracy than, con- be- than confront it in terms of the light of God's Word and the light of the Savior. In John eight twelve, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Notice how light and life are joined. What we see in, in, in Israel spiritually at the beginning of Samuel is death and degeneracy and destruction, and they're, they're, they're lost. But what happens as a result of Samuel is there's going to be light and there's going to be hope and there's going to be a reversal of fortune in the nation Israel because of, because of God. In John twelve forty six, Jesus said, I've come as light unto the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And then we think of these great passages in Paul, where Paul says that we're to put on the armor of light in Romans thirteen twelve, and we're to walk as children of light in, in Ephesians 5, 8. And then in Philippians two thirteen, which is a verse that I've, I've really thought a lot about in the last a couple of years, is that Paul says that we are to be blameless and harmless children of God without faith in the midst of a, without fault rather, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation 
among whom we are to shine as lights in the world. And do we shine as lights in the world? That ought to be a question that we often think about as we reflect upon our own lives. So we're, we see at the beginning of this, this chapter that the emphasis is on the darkness, the lack of revelation, the lack of illumination. And in three one we read, Now the boy Samuel ministered to Yahweh before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Now that is the foundational verse for understanding this whole chapter. And I want you to, if you've got your Bible open, and you should, to 1 Samuel 3, Look at the very last verse. The last sentence in the last verse says, keep this in mind. What does this verse say? The word of the Lord was rare in those days. And the last sentence in this verse says, the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So this chapter is framed by two statements about the word of the Lord, that it's rare and that it is confirmatory of uh, Samuel's role when we get down to verse 21. That, uh, for you guys who've had any background in artillery, that brackets the section. That tells us where it begins and where it ends. That sets it off. And so that tells us also that this whole section is about the word of the Lord. It is about God's revelation. So we have this interchange of uh, the, the, the literary technique of emphasizing uh, darkness and light and the lamp and the dimness of Eli's uh, vision as he's growing blind, just as the nation is grown blind. And then we have this, these two statements at the beginning at the end. So it's just a very dynamic, interesting uh, set, set up for the particular chapter. Now what we see as we get into this is an emphasis on God's grace. What is about to happen, to give away the ending, what is about to happen in chapter 4 is one of the most significant battles in this period of Israel's history called the Battle of Aphek. It takes place down near the uh, the coastal, coastal plains, and the, they meet the Philistines, and the first time they go into battle, they're... They're defeated, and 4,000 are killed. And then they get this idea that, well, if we just carry the ark into battle, God's going to give us victory. So they hustle back to Shiloh, and they grab the ark, and they come back like it's a good luck charm. And they go into battle, and the Philistines are scared to death because this is the God that brought them out of Egypt, and they know all the stories about what God has done. But God's got to clean up Israel before he can start changing things. And he's got to cleanse the nation from the apostasy and the degeneracy of, of Eli and his sons and the priesthood. And he's got to straighten out their, think, their thinking, which has become so apostatized. So God has got to bring them to a further level of defeat and destruction before they're humbled enough to follow him. And so what happens is that God allows the ark to be captured by the pagan uh, pagan Philistines, and this just destroys the, the whole me- mental attitude and um, uh, uh, of Israel. And, and so that's where this is going to go. But before that happens, God gives grace to the nation. 
Uh, that comes, chapter 4 comes several years, maybe 10 or 15 years after the events of chapter 3. And so there's a period of grace prior to judgment. And God is bringing out this, this, this young, young man now, uh, this young man Samuel, who God is going to bless before all the nation, and he's going to speak to the nation through this, this young prophet, who will be the priest who takes the place of Eli and he will be the become a judge in Eli's place and bring integrity back to leadership back to leadership in Israel. So this is an example of how grace uh, precedes a judgment. And it's also a training tool because God is going to give Samuel a vision uh, in this prophecy and this prophecy is about the destruction of the house of Eli. And here Eli is sort of functioning as his surrogate father, and he's going to have to tell Eli that your number's up and God is going to uh, blow your house down, basically, and you're in serious trouble. And Samuel really doesn't want to tell him that. We get the idea that there's a certain amount of affection between Samuel and Eli, even though Eli is is pictured as this ineffective uh, degenerate priest. So in this first verse, the emphasis is on revelation. That's the theme of this whole section. And we read that the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord, which, as I stated earlier, is the fourth time in this section. It's mentioned in 2.11, 2.18, and 3.1, again emphasizing that Samuel is obedient to the Lord. He's focused on his role and responsibilities, whereas Eli has been too permissive as a parent. His sons are degenerate, and they're abusing uh, abusing the people. So there's a contrast between Samuel's performance of his responsibilities and the rebelliousness of Eli's two, uh, two sons of Belial. Another thing that we should note here is how, how Samuel is submissive, submitted to the authority of these degenerate priests. And we need to pay attention to that because we live in a world when we have a degenerate leadership. We have degenerate leadership in business. We have degenerate leadership in academia. We have degenerate leadership in the halls of Congress and in the White House. And there are many conservatives and many Bible-believing people who are so frustrated that they cross the line in terms of their opposition and their anger and their hostility to the government. We don't see that in, Eli, in, in Samuel. Samuel is giving us a perfect example, as David will later under Saul, of how the believer who is humble under the authority of God does not go out of bounds when he's dealing with a degenerate leadership that has been put in place by God. And so this goes against the kind of radical civil disobedience uh, that some people would, would, uh, would promote. But it also tells us here that the importance is revelation, the word of God. And the word that is used here to that's translated revelation is the Hebrew word chazon, which means vision or revelation. Not vision in the sense that, that if you're starting a company, you need to have a good vision statement of what it is that you're trying to accomplish. That's not how the word vision is used with this word. It has to do with uh, the fact that God reveals himself in the Old Testament a number of different ways. Two of them that are similar are dreams and visions. A dream was how God would speak to you if you were asleep. A vision was similar, but it came when you were wide awake. 
And so that's what happens here is vision, and it's a means by which God communicates his word and his will to his people. Now, this is the same word that's used over in Proverbs 29, 18, which I think is a passage that's both abused and quoted out of context a lot. And this proverb says, where there is no vision. And what it is saying is where there's no revelation, where the word of God is not having an impact. That's the point of that statement. Where the word of God does not have authority where there is no revelation. And the second line says the people perish. Now, in English, that communicates the idea of self-destruction. And that may be part of it. But the Hebrew word that is that is used there is the word parats. And it, according to the uh, uh, theological word book of the Old Testament, the primary meaning of this word is to run amok. And it's used that way in Exodus 32.25. Remember when Moses is up getting the law on Mount Sinai and he's gone for for a, a long time. He's up there for 40 days and nights and the people got bored and they convinced uh, Aaron to build him an idol and they partied hardy uh, and had an orgy down below while, while Moses was up on the mountain. They ran amok. They were out of control. They were morally unrestrained. And that's what that word means. So if we paraphrase this according to the Hebrew text, it says where there is no revelation, where the word of God has no impact, the people are morally unrestrained, but he that keeps the law is happy. The implication is the people who are morally unrestrained are not happy. They're going to become miserable and they're going to self-destruct. But the person who maintains their focus on the word they are going to be happy and they are going to be stable in the midst of uncertainty and in the midst of chaos. Now, when we look at the uh, next couple of verses in verse 2 and 3, uh, we read, And it came to pass at that time while Eli was lying down in his place, when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see. So we have the fact that he's in darkness. His eyesight is going. He can't see what's really going on around him. And then we have a contrast in verse 3, and before the lamp of God. Now, what's this lamp of God that we're talking about here? It's the lamp of God out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was. What lamp is this? It's the menorah inside the Holy of Holies. So where must Samuel be? Samuel must be sleeping either just outside the holy, the holy place, the Holy of Holies, I mean the holy place, not the Holy of Holies, and he must be sleeping just outside or he's sleeping in there to make sure that the lamp does not go out. He's taking his responsibilities extremely seriously. He is focused on on what his job is as a priest, and where's Eli? Eli's taking a nap. He's sleeping off on his own. Now, it could be that Eli, who's quite old at this time, he may be 80 at this point. There's 15 years between chapter 3 and chapter 4. Then he's he's old. He's in poor health. He's corpulent. Uh, he can't get around. And so he's having Samuel uh, perform his duties uh, his duties for him. And so that that is what's happened. So we see that there's this lack. Probably Eli has never heard the word of God in his life. He's never been spoken to or addressed by God. And so he doesn't expect that God would speak, although the expectation is that it is in the holy place 
that God, before the Ark of the Covenant, that God speaks as he did to, to Moses. So what's happened during this intervening period is a period called the silence of God. God has been silent for some time. Now, I want to just summarize for you the doctrine of the silence of God because this is important. We live in a time when God is silent. He has spoken through his word, but he is not speaking audibly and directly to his people anymore. So let's just review it historically. First of all, God was silent from the time of Joseph in Genesis, around Genesis 49 with uh, Jacob's prophecy over his, his sons. God is silent for approximately 400 years, maybe a little bit less. It was 450 years from Abraham uh, to the Exodus, so it's probably a period of about 350 years. God was silent. There's no new revelation whatsoever between the, time, the end of, of Genesis and the beginning of, of Exodus. So God was silent during that time. Second, there's another period of silence during the apostasy that we're talking about here from the time of Samuel until the, t- I mean, the time of Samson to the time of Samuel. So this would be a short period of time, maybe 75 years or so. Third, God was silent during the period between the end of the Old Testament, the last book to be recorded, uh, uh, the last prophet to be recorded was Malachi, and the time of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the announcement to to First John, John the Baptist, Father uh, Zechariah, and then to to uh, to Mary. So there's a silent period there of about of about 400 years, and then now we have a period when God is silent; He's only speaking through His Word. Now, why do we have these periods of divine silence? If you listen to some Christians today, they can't stand the fact that God is silent. They think God needs to be speaking to every Christian today like he did to some Christians and some believers in the Bible. But God's silence is for different reasons. He's silent from the time of Joseph to Moses for much the same reason he's silent now, and that is to teach people to wait on him, to rely upon what has been revealed and to wait for the deliverer of the Lord. They're looking forward to that. They have certain prophecies they can focus on, and they're to wait for that. At the time of Samson to Samuel, God is silent because of their degeneracy, because they have rejected God and because he's taking them through a period of divine discipline. Uh, third, when we talk about the intertestamental period, it's much like the period between uh, between. Uh, uh, the end of Genesis and the beginning of, of Exodus, that the focus is for God's people to know his word, to study it, to understand those prophecies related to Messiah. So like Simeon in Luke, uh, Luke 3 or Luke 2, they can be ready for when the Messiah comes. So it's a form of testing. And that's the same thing that's true now. So God has given us his word. The issue is, are we willing to really pay attention to it and to really learn it and to reflect upon it, meditate upon it, and to internalize it so that we can come to understand what he is saying so that we can live our lives today on the basis, uh, on the basis of his word. So that's the reason for the silence of God. God does not speak to us today through a still small voice, which is the, uh, which is a misinterpretation and misapplication 
of the uh, statement in First Kings when uh, uh, Elijah ran off down into the Sinai and God uh, took care of him and there was a big... Uh, there was an earthquake and there's a tornado, all these big things, and then God comes to him in a still small voice. What God was saying was that God doesn't deal with things only in the major overt big ways that God also uh, uh, just speaks directly to, to the prophet. So that was part of it. But today God speaks through his word, and a lot of people think that somehow God speaks to me. And this is called mysticism that God directs and guides us apart from his word. And I've, I've loved this phrase forever. It's just epistemological antinomianism. That means you're just in rebellion against God for what you want to know. I want to know what God wants me to do tomorrow, so I'm going to wait for God to tell me what to do tomorrow. And I have some, some idea that pops into my head, and I say, that must be God speaking to me. Well, if God is speaking to you, then you're pretty special because in this dispensation, God is no longer revealing himself directly to his people. He reveals himself through his word. I ran across a quote. It's a great quote for the day from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was one of the most significant Puritan uh, pastors in the uh, colonies during the period of about 1730s. Uh, to 1740s, and he said, as long as a person has a notion that he is guided by the immediate direction from heaven, in other words, well, God told me to do this. How many people use that phrase? Well, that's what God wants me to do. That's just blaming God for your bad decisions. So as long as a person has a notion that he is guided by immediate direction from heaven, it makes him incorrigible and impregnable in all of his misconduct. In other words, he's just using God to justify all of his bad decisions and to do whatever it is that he wants to do. So, this is the issue in Revelation. We need to know what God says. And the only way you need you learn that is through your own personal study of the Word. We need to be people of the book, and we need to know it, not just a pastor's interpretation of the text, but we need to know what the Word says. Because all sermons are based, or used to be, back when things were the way they were supposed to be, based upon the Scripture, and they presuppose that the audience has some vague working knowledge of who the people in the Bible are. Who, who was Meher Shalal Hashbaz? Who was Mephibosheth? Uh, who, was Anna, who were Ananias and Sapphira? Who are these people? If you've read through your Bible, the names ought to sound familiar. You've just heard me mention them so many times they sound familiar. But we ought to know who these people are. Who, who are these judges? Who are, who, who are these major kings that are mentioned again and again and again in Scripture? And when you look at the Bible, there are certain key events like the events of creation, the events of the flood, the events of the call of Abraham, the events of the Exodus especially, the events of the wilderness wanderings, uh, certain key events in the life of David uh, that are repeated and referred to and alluded to over and over and over again in the New Testament. And if you're reading through the New Testament and suddenly you, you read about Moses taking the children through, uh, through the wilderness uh, in, in Hebrews, if you don't know the book of Numbers... You're not going to understand what that's talking about. The Bible holds together, so we need to understand the Scripture 
because it is through the Scripture that God teaches us, and we need to make sure that we're reading it. That doesn't mean you're going to always uh, understand it. I don't always understand it. I have to spend a lot of time sometimes just studying and pulling commentaries off the shelf, looking at the Greek, looking at the Hebrew, thinking it through. But you, we have to read it. One of the best pieces of advice I was ever given by Bob Tolson, who used to be the pastor of Bethel uh, Independent Presbyterian, uh, back when I was uh, considering going back to Dallas to work on my doctorate, he said, one of the things you ought to do, Robbie, is make sure you're reading the Bible. If you think that the folks in your church should read their Bible once a year, you should be reading your Bible five or six times a year. And for probably the next 10 or 12 years, I would read through my Bible once every six weeks. And that meant I was taking 50 or 60 chapters a day. That takes a while to read that many chapters. That takes two or three hours every morning just to read through all those chapters. But that's how you come to understand what's going on in the Bible. And that's how you come to know what, what all these, what the themes are. So we need to make that a, a, a priority in our life. That when it, when it's all over with, the only thing that we're going to take to heaven with us is the, is what's in our soul, our understanding of God's word and the doctrine that comes from that that relates to our life. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study, to be reminded of the importance of your revelation as we see that here in 1 Samuel chapter 3 and how that makes a difference, that it is that renewal of your revelation to your people through Samuel raising up a prophet that makes a difference as your grace is expounded throughout the nation. It eventually makes that difference, transitioning them from a, a nation of paganism and degeneracy to a nation that's, that was grace-oriented under, under David and that rose to a great position of, of prosperity because they were focused upon you during that period of their history. And that is true for us individually, that we need to be focused upon you and knowledgeable about your word and your grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.